0: Hello, and welcome to Homegrown KC, a podcast dedicated to exploring Kansas City's fascinating history and sharing stories from its rich past. I'm your host, Laura. Join me today as we explore a piece of Kansas City's history. Welcome to 2020 everyone. This is episode 1 of my second series entitled Paris of the Plains. I chose this title because it was a nickname given to Kansas City in the early 1900s. 2020 is the 100th anniversary of the beginning of the 1920s, which are often called the Golden 20s or the Roaring 20s. So what better way to begin 2020 than with the series on a period in KC history known as the Pendergast Era, which also took place during the 1920s. Now, I know that I just name-dropped Pendergast, and longtime KC residents will likely recognize that name. However, I will not discuss him today. He will be covered in-depth later in the series. Lastly, if this is your first time listening to Homegrown KC, thank you and welcome. I'm so glad that you found me. After this episode, I would encourage you to go back and listen to my introductory series, specifically episode 4, Jazz in Kansas City as the height of jazz in Kansas City also took place during this time period. This is my favorite time period in American history because there is just so much going on culturally, and the juxtaposition between official morality laws and the casual, widespread flaunting of said laws by the average American is so wild and just so, so fascinating. So, let's get this gin party started. Quote, If you want to see some sin, forget Paris and head to Kansas City. With the possible exception of such renowned centers as Singapore and Port Said, Kansas City has the greatest sin industry in the world. That is a quote by Edward Morrow of the Omaha World Herald. There are several variations of that quote, but each of them calls Kansas City Paris, or denounces it as filled with more vice than Paris. A quick side note, in addition to Paris of the Plains, Kansas City was also known as modern Sodom, Athens of the West, and home of the wettest block in the world. This wet block ran from 1700 to 1724 on West Ninth Street between Bell and State Line, and, quote, opponents of alcohol called the area a disgrace, a curse, and an excruciating and demoralizing place. "...fueled by corruption and vice, a place full of dirt, grime, crime, degradation, filth, and foulness." That is from Carla Deal's book, Storied and Scandalous. Alright, so in my episode on jazz in Kansas City, I said, "...prohibition grew out of the temperance movement. The temperance movement was the idea that all the evils of American society could be traced back to the consumption of alcohol." So Prohibition made the creation and sale of alcohol outside of medicinal purposes illegal. But Americans really liked their alcohol, even back then. So of course this law just meant that they had to get creative as they continued to drink. This is a vast oversimplification of this period in American history. So now we're going to get down into the details of it. The temperance movement in America began in the early 1800s, but the movement really picked up speed after the Civil War. See, before the Civil War, everyone, and I mean everyone, even children, drank beer. It was no big deal. In many places, it was even a part of the wages that you earned. But hard liquor was introduced after the war, and drinking habits in America just skyrocketed. A lot of folks, mainly women, blamed alcohol and alcoholism, although they didn't have a name for it as such back then, for the many issues that they perceived within society, especially what they saw as the collapse of the family unit. The end goal of temperance advocates was prohibition, or the elimination of alcohol from American society. The idea of temperance had actually been around as early as the Revolutionary War probably even earlier. And if I'm remembering correctly, the first temperance law was actually in Tennessee in the late 1700s. But all these temperance groups formed across America and the most powerful and the most well-remembered ones today were the Temperance Christian Union, which preached that Satan was the creator of alcohol. And so, of course, it was evil in liquid form. Ha! Huh. Liquid Evil, not Liquid Courage. Have a drink of Liquid Evil. Uh, Their motto was Lips that touch liquor shall not touch ours. Another really popular and really powerful group was the Anti Saloon League. Under their influence, several cities and states enacted their own temperance laws. Long story short, they grew so powerful that they were able to influence lawmakers, and the 18th Amendment was born. Congress ratified it, so basically they all agreed to it, on January 16th, 1919, and the law went into effect one year later on January 20th, 1920. So, we just celebrated the 100th anniversary of the 18th Amendment. Alright, I'm going to read the amendment to you now. After one year from the ratification of this article, the manufacture, sale, and or transportation of intoxicating liquors within the importation thereof into, or the exportation thereof from the United States and all territories subject to the jurisdiction thereof for beverage purposes is hereby prohibited. The Congress and the several states shall have concurrent power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. This article shall be inoperative unless it shall have been ratified as an amendment to the Constitution by the legislatures of the several states, as provided in the Constitution, within seven years from the date of the submission thereof to the states by the Congress. End quote. Yikes, that is a convoluted mess. Basically, alcohol is a no-go, and we can enact whatever laws we need to in order to enforce this law. Hence, we have the Volstead Act. Now, before I read the Volstead Act to you, I have a short story about it. It was named after the representative from Minnesota, Andrew Volstead. It was passed in both houses, but then vetoed by President Woodrow Wilson, and Congress had to veto his veto. Now, I'm not a political historian, so those who are can correct me if I'm wrong, but to my knowledge, that's not a common occurrence. I just think it's kind of humorous that Congress vetoed the president's veto. Anyway, the Volstead Act goes like this. To prohibit intoxicating beverages and to regulate the manufacture, use, and sale of high-proof spirits for other beverages' purposes, and to ensure an ample supply of alcohol and promote its use in scientific research and then the development of fuel, dye, and other lawful industries. The Volstead Act also specified that beer could only contain one-half of one percent alcohol. So think about that in comparison to today's alcohol, where the lowest is usually six or eight percent. But these drinks became known as near beer. Uh, Quick aside... I don't know of any scientific research conducted on alcohol during Prohibition and a quick Google search did not reveal anything, but if this is your jam or if you're super intrigued and want to research it, please message me on one of my social medias or website and drop some knowledge my way, that would be awesome to learn if anything actually had been accomplished. Alright, so let's get back on track, it's 1920, alcohol is illegal. And the last almost 10 minutes that you've been listening to me ramble on have all led us to this, speakeasies. Now, one of my main sources for this episode identified a number of speakeasies in Kansas City. I would not have called them speakeasies, and perhaps I've been a little too influenced by Hollywood here, but they weren't really hidden like you typically think of a speakeasy. Everyone knew where they were. They were right out in the open. In fact, according to John Simonson, cabs would pick up visitors at Union Station and drive them straight to the club. Didn't even ask them if they wanted to go, just assumed that they did. There were a number of well-known clubs in town, the Hey Hey Club, the Chesterfield Club, the Reno Club, the Sunset Club, the Blue Room, etc. And most of these were actually clubs or dance halls. But some resided in hotels. One was even in the basement of a sandwich shop. So you could get a drink or buy a bottle of alcohol in a drugstore if you had a written permit. Uh, or even a soda parlor was popular. Speaking of which, earlier when I said that they had to get creative in their consumption, I didn't just mean that they had to creatively hide their hordes, although there's a hell of a ton of that. Simonson said Drink parlors used loose floorboards, false wall panels and secret rooms. Police found booze creatively stashed in an old organ in a vacant church, a milk bottle painted white, the upholstered back of an automobile seat, a box marked polish at a shoe shine parlor, a rain barrel with a false bottom, a backyard pile of ashes, a rose bush. A barrel of spinach at a produce stand, a bin of buns at a hamburger stand, and in baskets of corn being delivered. So, that sounds more like the kind of stuff you would think of a speakeasy doing. And bootleggers and rum runners made bank on imports. Most Americans got creative in the creation of their alcohol. Ever heard of bathtub gin? That's what this is. So, they had a year to stock up, and they did, but once that was gone, they needed a quick and easy way to get more. Cocktails were invented during this time. Mmm. I love cocktails. Fruity and sweet. I'm very basic when it comes to my alcohol, but I'm okay with that. Anyways, this new thing called a cocktail contained, as it does today, Lots of things besides alcohol, which meant that a little alcohol went a long way. These other ingredients also helped hide the taste of the alcohol, because during this time it probably didn't taste very good. And in fact, it was very likely to be poison. Thousands died of alcohol poisoning during Prohibition. Folks mixed together whatever they could find to make alcohol. Uh, Moonshine, made from corn mash, was very popular, as was... Denatured alcohol? So, here's a quote from Simonson's book. Industrial, or denatured alcohol, was essentially grain alcohol with chemicals added to make it undrinkable, and included cleaning fluids, antifreeze, paint, perfumes, and hair tonics. So, an entrepreneurial member of society could buy any one of these chemicals legally and since science isn't really my thing, especially chemistry, I didn't understand it well in high school, uh, don't get me wrong, it's cool. But I'm just gonna say they performed some mad scientific experiments, aka chemistry things, and turned this non-drinkable poison back into something that could theoretically, at least, be safely consumed. Simonson also said that this process was simpler than distilling new alcohol or moonshine out of corn mash, um, which again, corn mash could be legally purchased. Whiskey could also still be legally purchased. Uh, I think I mentioned that earlier. If you had a doctor's note, you could purchase it in small quantities. Um, I believe some wine qualified for that as well. There was also something called Jakefoot, or Jake, Um, it's a paralysis that could occur from drinking contaminated ginger extract from Jamaica and it was also used in cocktails. And of course you all know that this period saw the creation of flappers, young stylishly dressed young women with short haircuts. Actually this period also saw a surge in several political and social rights and freedoms for women of which the flapper is an epitome. But this, too, is another topic for another episode. So, you end up with this fascinating dichotomy. On the one hand, you have morality laws, like the 18th Amendment and the Volstead Act. And on the other hand, you have a glorification, although some of that is certainly an after-effect instigated by Hollywood, of Rum Runners, Flappers, Speakeasies, and the continued consumption of alcohol. Once again, I give you The Great Gatsby as a prime example of 1920s society. So as I have said, there were several clubs throughout the city, and Vice reigned supreme without interference from local PD, and only minor interference from the FBI and Prohibition officers. Oh yeah, did you know that there was a Bureau of Prohibition created by the Volstead Act to enforce the act? Yep. But let's talk about some specific examples from here in KC, shall we? Even though this was a wide-open town, with the police almost uniformly on the payroll of Pendergast and or the mob, raids were still conducted by federal agents. These examples are all from Simonson's book, Prohibition in Kansas City, Missouri. So, in December 1926... The feds raided a brick warehouse at 1321 Virginia Avenue and arrested a man known as Joe Pete Pisano. In his warehouse, they found 41 steel drums holding 52 gallons of denatured alcohol and purifying equipment. So each of the 41 drums held 52 gallons. So a lot of alcohol. In 1925, they raided a house in Westport And the dude claimed that all the beer was for personal consumption, not sale. Now, for a gallon or two, maybe that defense would work, maybe not. But this guy had 5,000 pints in his basement. Claiming it's for personal use? Ballsy. Ooh, I love this one. The Federal Police raided a church. True story. In 1921, they raided the second floor of the Friendship Baptist Mission... 1141 East 5th Street, they found, quote, stills, corn mash, 40 gallons of moonshine, and 2,000 gallons of wine, end quote. No arrests were made. The congregation was African American, but the stills were believed to have been run by the KC Italian Mafia. All right, here's the last episode I'll give you today. Um, excuse me, the last example I will give you today. The largest bust in Kansas City occurred on June 23rd in 1927. Federal police raided the Tingle Oil Company at 2932 Fairmont Avenue. There were five 1,000-gallon mash vats, 20 wooden beer kegs, and beer-making paraphernalia, according to Simonson. And the beer was tested at 7% alcohol. Remember that... At this time, the legal limit was 0.5%. By the end of the 1920s, thousands of temperance advocates realized that their current mode was wreck and switched sides. One famous example is Pauline Sabin. She may or may not sound familiar to you. She was a nationally recognized advocate for prohibition, but in 1929 she formed the Women's Organization for National Prohibition Reform. Likewise, when Herbert Hoover became president in 1929, even though he was a staunch supporter of Prohibition, he immediately asked Congress to give repeal serious consideration. Well, Congress did form a committee to look into it, and 18 long industrious months later submitted a report of their findings. They unanimously opposed repeal, but they did propose the 18th Amendment and subsequent laws such as the Volstead Act, be adapted to allow better enforcement of prohibition. According to the Ma Museum website, y'all, there is an actual museum on the history of the American Mafia, and it's in Las Vegas. It's on my bucket list. It should be on yours. According to this website, the collapse of the economy and the onset of the Great Depression in 1930 lent repeal more widespread public support because it was believed that repeal would lead to a job boom as the brewing industry reopened and subsequent sales would help reboost the economy. Now, this certainly sounds plausible, but it's not how history played out. Regardless, when FDR, President Franklin Roosevelt, was elected in 1932, Congress also turned over and became a Democratic majority. Roosevelt, if you didn't know, was a Democrat and they enacted repeal with the 21st Amendment. The 18th Article of Amendment to the Constitution of the United States is hereby repealed. The transportation or importation into any state, territory, or possession of the United States for delivery or use therein of intoxicating liquors and violation of the laws thereof is hereby prohibited." This article shall be inoperative unless it shall have been ratified as an amendment to the Constitution by conventions in the several states, as provided in the Constitution within seven years from the date of the submission thereof to the states by the Congress. Y'all, why they gotta make these so wordy and difficult to understand? But, basically, unlike the 18th Amendment, which had made prohibition a national law simultaneously, across the land, Congress put repeal in the hands of each state which in turn put it in the hands of each individual county. This is why there are still some dry counties today. For example, Moore County in Tennessee. Here's some delicious irony for you. Moore is home to the Jack Daniels distillery. So Jack Daniels whiskey cannot be bought and sold in the county where it is made. Missouri state law forbids counties to enact dry laws, but it will allow cities to do so. Go figure. And Kansas still has three completely dry counties as of December 2019. So the question that remains is, how did the end of Prohibition affect Kansas City? The answer, of course, is not at all, since in practice, Prohibition never existed within the city to begin with. That is the end of today's episode. Before I sign off, I have some sources for you. First, I highly recommend visiting pendergastkc.org. It's a website by the Kansas City Public Library, and much of what you have heard today came from it. They even have a map that shows you where raids took place. So I'll have two links on the site for you, one to the main page and one to the map. You absolutely have to see it. The website also has this wicked cool timeline of events that occurred during the Pendergast era. There'll be a link to that as well. Likewise, I highly recommend Prohibition in Kansas City, Missouri, Highballs, Spooners, and Crooked Dice by John Simpson. You can find it at your local library, especially if you live in the Kansas City area. It's organized by geographical location, and during Prohibition, each of the locations mentioned Stored booze, and several of them experienced one or more raids by federal agents. There are numerous locations named, and I'm sure it's only a small fraction of such incidents. Storied in Scandalous Kansas City, A History of Corruption, Mischief, and a Whole Lot of Booze by Carla Deal was also an excellent find. I really enjoyed this one. Very easy to read. It's organized partly by subject matter and partly by chronology. Uh, It actually covers history a little before Prohibition and then up into the 60s and 70s, so the results of Prohibition. Uh, There's also a chapter at the end with random short stories from Kansas City history that have nothing to do with the rest of the book. Additionally, Carla has a website, SqueezeBoxCity.com. This also proved to be a great research resource. Try saying that five times fast. I'm also posting a link to a site where you can read the 18th Amendment, as well as the Volstead Act and the 21st Amendment. And I have a website about temperance for those who are interested. It's ohiohistorycentral.org slash w slash temperance movement. Lastly, don't forget to listen to the episode on jazz. And check out the episode on the stockyards while you're at it. Um, as this also relates to future episodes in the series. Thank you for joining me today. If you enjoyed this podcast, please tell a friend, rate, and review me on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. The more people that give me a good rating, the easier it'll be for others to find me. You can find me online at homegrownkc.wordpress.com. My email is homegrownpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com and I am all over social media as Homegrown KC. If you want to support the show, you can do so by subscribing to patreon.com slash homegrownkc or redcircle.com slash homegrownkc. By doing so, you will receive access to exclusive bonus episodes featuring other local historians and museum experts. You will also receive a shout-out here on the show, so my first shout-out goes to Mike and Bjorn. Thank you for your support. A special thanks goes out to my talented sister-in-law, Sarah McCombs, who created my logo. To the Dear Misses for the use of their song Kansas City as intro and outro music. And last but not least, to local libraries, which enabled me to gather all my research. Thanks for listening.
1: seem to shake this feeling, and I can seem to get you off my mind.